1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. My name's Prash, I'm the Senior Minister. Very warm welcome if you're new or visiting. Uh, welcome, of course, to our regulars. This morning, we continue our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've spent um, a number of weeks looking at this letter by the Apostle Paul. We're coming close to the end. Next week is the last week. And then we uh, turn our minds to Christmas and the season of Advent. Um, let me pray for us before we reflect. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray your Holy Spirit apply to our hearts and minds uh, this morning. And so make us more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I want to ask you, how do you prepare for a trip? Have you ever gone overseas? If that's, that's your kind of thing. How do you prepare for going overseas? In our extended family, uh, it is a common, a common uh, occurrence for us to prepare for an overseas trip by losing a passport or a ticket. Uh, we have had members of our family, I say extended because I really do want to abs- uh, absolve present members or those who are in our congregation from any guilt, uh, but extended members have been known to make a last-minute dash to the passport office um, or to uh, madly turn up the whole house to find the ticket uh, or, in fact, to forget that they were flying out on that day only to have to um, scurry to the airport at the last minute to catch their flight. How do you trip prepare for this great trip? Well, the reason I ask that is because Paul has been casting a vision of the eternal future of God's people in the last couple of uh, weeks. We've been looking at 1 Thessalonians. There's been this great vision of eternity that Paul has set before the Thessalonians and now us. And in a sense, having gone to those heights in these last verses of the book, he, he says to the Thessalonians, here's what I want you to do as you prepare for that reality. You're going on a great and eternal trip, my friends. And here is what I want you to do. And so from verse 12 through to the end of chapter 5, Paul gives a whole series of commands and instructions and encouragements to the people of Thessalonica and so to us as well about how to, how to be ready for this eternal future. And this, this morning, uh, the section that we've uh, parceled out for ourselves looks primarily at the, uh, the life of God's people and so asks us to prepare ourselves in our life together for the future. And what does he ask of us? Well, from the outset, it's quite interesting and quite challenging, actually. It's not the things that we might automatically consider. But he says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. This is quite startling, actually. He says, the way you prepare for the future 
is seen in the way you treat your leaders, the people who lead amongst you. He doesn't just mean your senior minister, he means your Bible study leaders, your parish councillors, your wardens, those kind of people. I mean, those are all Anglican terms, and modern church terms, but he's speaking about those people in your midst who exercise uh, leadership of some sorts, care. Now, it's very interesting to note a couple of things. First of all, the type of leaders that he's describing here, he says people who work hard among you, who care for you, and who admonish you, people who are labouring. They're not leaders just because they have a title, they're not leaders because they've been voted in. They're leaders by virtue of their activity, their action, their commitment. Uh, the Bible often talks about leaders using the image of a shepherd, someone who works hard, who nurtures and cares for his sheep, her sheep. And, and that, tra- that image is transferred to the leadership of the church. And you see it here again. It's a particular type of leader. It is someone who works hard, but it's also someone who might have that challenging conversation with you, who might encourage you, rebuke you, who would admonish you, to use the words of Paul here. And what's also interesting to see is, having identified those people, look at how we are called to treat them, to hold them in the highest regard, to hold them in high esteem, but challengingly, in love. It's not a begrudging acknowledgement of leaders. It's not a willingness to just say, okay, well, that's their job, and so I'll do what they say. It's in love. You are to cherish them, in a sense. If you were to summarise it, Paul is to say, you are to treasure those who lead you well. You are to treasure those who lead you well. Whatever kind of role of leadership that is, whatever form of work or care or labour or even admonishment that you receive from them, treasure it, he says. This is how you prepare, actually, for eternity. This is why you, you, this is this is how you're to pack your bags, so to speak. Now, what's what's interesting and perhaps challenging about this? Maybe 50 years ago, this passage would not have really raised a, a second thought. But we drink a, we drink in a, a spirit of the age which uh, generally feels hostile to this kind of language, especially in the church. Now, it might be because actually you've experienced one of those uh, you've experienced a type of leadership which isn't really what Paul's talking about. It's harsh, it's cruel, it's narcissistic, it's abusive. Uh, And if that's the case, that will naturally make it hard for you to accept any kind of leadership, to treasure it the way Paul... You might begrudgingly do it, but certainly not in love, not with the warmth uh, that Paul's talking about here. And uh, my sympathies are with you, in fact. My sympathies are with you if that's your experience of leadership. But it's also true, I think, that we do find it hard to accept and to treasure, in fact, those who lead us because the spirit of the age that we drink in, that we absorb, is a spirit which says that actually the primary authority in your life is you. And no one else should have the right to tell you how to do something, to instruct you or guide you or direct you, to seek an obligation from you. Uh, the concept of leadership has been undermined, I think, by uh, um, the priority of the individual in making their own choices and decisions. It's not always bad. But Paul here says, in the context of God's church, actually what prepares us well for the future is good leaders and the willingness to accept it. But what is interesting is that that's not all that it is. Uh, Perhaps when you hear that kind of language, you think of those kind of dystopian pictures of The Handmaid's Tale or something like that where religion is used as some kind of um, 
power or authority which exerts a negative influence on people. Uh, you know, it's top down. But the picture of the church is never just simply top down. It never is. It's interesting. I mean, this year we spend a lot of time talking about the mutual relationships of God's people. That's not been really by design. I mean, our, our vision series was on that. But we've come across it regularly as we've opened up the scriptures. And that's just by virtue of systematically working through the Bible. Because the New Testament particularly is very concerned with the mutual responsibilities we have. And so you pick it up again here. He says in verse 12 and 13, treasury leaders, but in verse 14, he then goes on to say, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, as in you, us, the group of God's people, the congregation of believers, the fellowship of saints, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And so actually he gives us, there's four commands, that's why I've, I've highlighted those in pink there, they're actually all commands, and they're, they're, they're interestingly directed at you, God's people. Uh, a couple of things, I mean, I could spend a long time reflecting just on those four, I just want to reflect on a couple of things. First of all, the word encourage. Encourage, you see. I think that's probably the most underrated skill in church life, encouragement. Encouragement is a great gift. It's a great gift. It's a vital gift in the life of God's church. You know this when you have received encouragement, don't you? It is such a sweet gift when someone encourages you in your task. Now, we, we, we undermine it when we're giving it out because it seems so easy to give. But when we receive it, we understand the beauty of it. Encouragement is such a valuable and vital part of God's church. It's, a, it's an act of generosity, encouragement. It's an act of, of goodness and goodwill towards someone to see, see the good that they've done and to embrace it and, and reflect it back to them. Act of generosity is an act of love to other people. Act of encouragement, sorry, is an act of love towards other people. Encouragement, I think, is, is kind of, it, it's minimised often in our church life. We're too busy to encourage. Uh, we're, we're too kind of wrapped up in the task that we're, whatever we're involved in, to spend that moment of encouragement, uh, to even, to, we take often the service of others for granted. But here Paul reminds us actually that one of the ways we prepare each other, one of the ways we pack our bags for eternity is in the ordinary but beautiful task of encouraging one another. Here's the picture of God's people mutually responsible to one another. Mutually responsible to one another. The second thing that strikes me about this list is, I guess, the breadth of the things reflected here. See, on one hand, you have Paul saying to each person in the crowd, it's your job to warn those who are idle and disruptive. He means warn those who can't, like, this must have been a problem for the Thessalonians. There must have been some, because he's mentioned it previously in this letter, he mentions it again in his next letter to them. There must have been some for whom they kind of, they, they had given up the task of laboring in the Lord, right? And so Paul says, you need, to, you need to warn those people. You need to speak up. It's not just the job of the pastor or the elder or the teacher in your midst. It's actually a mutual responsibility to warn them. So there's one end of the spectrum, and the other is this, this, uh, the help, the encouragement, the patience that he talks about. 
And what's very interesting about the spectrum is it's applied to each person. And so you can't just say, uh, we, we notice this as a staff team is reflecting, it's not personality dependent. See what I mean? You can't just say, oh, I'm an encourager, I'll do the encouraging. I'm a positive person, I'll do the... Po-. Or, yes, I do conflict well. <laughs> I'm insightful, so I'll do the warning. But actually, it, it's, it's incumbent on you to do both. You, you can't say, oh, I don't do conflict well, so I'll leave that to someone else in my group. It's actually your responsibility. That's part of what it is to prepare someone well for eternity, is to take both of those things and to kind of be on both spectrum. Now, if you're an apathetic person, this is a challenging verse to you. You can't just sit back. You cannot be passive in the life of God's people. God has a role for you to play in preparing people well. And so I guess I do want to encourage you to enjoy this responsibility, actually. Enjoy the responsibility of of preparing others. That's what Paul's saying to the Thessalonians. I want you to be ready for that last day. Whenever it comes, it could come today. It could come tomorrow. Spend your time getting ready by preparing others. Spend your time getting ready by warning and encouraging and helping others in their task of being more like Christ. Just enjoy, ensure that they don't get distracted, that they don't rest on their laurels, they don't take for granted the things that are theirs. And so the life of a church is a life of this task. And I want to say, in, in St. Stephen's life, I think one of the main ways we do this is in the life of our weekly gap groups, actually. You can't encourage or warn someone in this setting. I mean, you can't, can you? You can't. As you sit, you might sit right next to them, but how do you warn them? How do you even know whether you need to warn them in this setting? Uh, your main encouragement and warning comes from me in this moment, but you are tasked with this, this responsibility too. And so, actually, our gap groups are just a brilliant space to do this. This is not mind blowing, this is true of most churches. This is why most churches have a space where people meet in smaller groups on a regular basis so that they can actually invest in other people. They can execute their responsibility. They can take up the charge and the privilege of caring for one another. But I think it's also true that this doesn't just happen within groups of similar-minded people, but also across generations. This is why, you know, this is why I have a picture of our children's ministry, because I think this is, this is one of the roles of our ministry to young people. We don't just provide them with childcare, we don't provide them with a fun environment, we don't just try and provide them with a good experience of church life so that when they're adults they might take it seriously. We are warning, admonishing and encouraging them right now because the Lord might return today. And so adulthood is not something they should be concerned with but their present childhood. And this is our task, this is our privilege, this is our responsibility, says Paul, as we prepare people, as we pack our bags and wait for eternity. It's a great challenge, it's, but it's also a great privilege. All of those pictures, you notice something about all of those pictures? People are smiling. That's not just because I said smile. I didn't have to tell them to smile. They love being with people. This is the joy of being with God's people. It's genuine, it's true. And if you don't experience it, I want, you, I want to encourage you to take up that Take up the responsibility that's on your shoulders, but also take up the privilege of being in that space.
But here's the thing. What Paul is asking us to do is not simply fulfilled by turning up at one of these groups. Even if you are one of the small minority who turns up every week. Uh, what Paul is asking us to do is far greater than that, actually. Because look, look at what he says. He says, be patient with everyone. Not just those in your gap group. Not just those in your family. Not just your children or your spouse, although sometimes they're the hardest. Uh, not, just, not just with those who do good to you. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. In other words, put aside your desire for vindication or retribution of getting your true and just desserts, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. You see the breadth of what Paul's describing here? He's describing a people who are so single-mindedly committed to preparing people for the Lord and for that day that there is no boundary to their patience and to their love. No boundary at all. And to be honest, this is a very, very difficult challenge. It is not something you have the natural resources to do, actually. You don't have the natural capacity to do it. In fact, I think being patient is in itself, just that little command is just worth reflecting on how hard it is to genuinely be patient with everyone. Now, there might be some people who are good-natured, who you feel like you have the resources to be patient with. Maybe God has already given you the skills of being patient with children, if that's your task. But to be patient with everyone, everyone is so challenging for us. In fact, the reason we can't be patient is, of course, because we are naturally, I think, impatient people. We're naturally impatient. See that graphic? Ever seen that one pop up on the screen? This is, this is the new life of shopping, isn't it? Here's my question. How do you feel between it's on the way and delivered? Do you feel excited? <laughs> or do you feel anxious? Do you feel, you know, energised or frustrated? <laughs> and if, for example, as this particular package was the case, it doesn't arrive when it's required, do you start to feel angry? You know, even something as simple as a package being delivered reflects something to us, doesn't it? I mean... 15 years ago, we wouldn't have even known it's on the way until it had been delivered. But we are impatient, aren't we? We live and we're impatient, I think even more so in our setting because we're so used to achieving things in our life. So the moment that something is just on its way and you no longer have control over it, you become impatient. And it doesn't just need to be uh, some, some Christmas shopping that you've executed. It, it could be as, as simple as waiting for a, a cake to bake or as more profound as, 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 as waiting for your child to mature and grow up. But we're impatient. We're impatient. We're impatient for achievement. We're impatient for ticking off that task. We're impatient for moving on. 
We're so used to actually achieving things in our life that the moment we have to wait for it and maybe wait far longer than we like. We're impatient for professional advancement. But maybe that's not what you have in store. And you become impatient. But impatience itself is not a problem. It's what impatience results in that's most problematic, you see. Here's what one author said. He said, The tragedy of the impatient heart is that it idolizes its own needs and craves its own time to such an extent that it's unable to suffer with those who are suffering. See what he's saying? The real tragedy of impatience is not that you... That impatience is in itself neither a virtue nor a vice. It is what results as, a, as, as you are impatient, which is a lack of love. A lack of love, a lack of empathy, a lack of care, a lack of understanding. You're so wrapped up in yourself, he says. So wrapped up in your needs, your achievement, your getting ahead that you, you cannot, you do not have the capacity to look around and see the needs of others, the suffering of others. Your impatience not only means that you are filled with anxiety, but your heart is rotten in a sense because you do not have the capacity to love others. You don't have the capacity to love them. And so actually what Paul's saying is he's presenting a bar which in and of ourselves is we're not actually capable of you don't have we don't have the natural resources to do what Paul's asking to be patient with everyone to show this kind of awareness and love for everyone we don't have that resource inevitably our needs our desires our successes or failures come in and intervene And there is someone or many people for whom we just do not seem to have the capacity to love. But Paul, what he's saying, it's a a genuine command. I mean, he doesn't just say be patient knowing that they'll be impatient. He says be patient because he understands that patience is valuable. It's valuable for you and for those you exercise as you prepare yourself for the day of the Lord. But we are patient only, only, you see, when we draw on the right resources. Paul writes this little section. Of course, it's all one letter. And so we break it up for the sake of our sermon series. But when they read it, they just read the whole thing at once, probably many times over and reflected. And just before they read this section, they would have read this verse from verse 10. We looked at it briefly last week. But here it is again, because this is the, this is the foundation for the life that Paul's saying. He says, he died for us, as Christ died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Paul is saying, this whole life together that you're meant to do as you wait for the Lord is only possible because you already are with the Lord. You can only be with each other because God has already chosen to be with you. It's the constant theme of Paul's teaching. You can only ever live the way God wants you to because you've already come to see what God has done for you. The phrase with him, I've highlighted because it's pregnant with meaning for Paul. And it's actually the, it's the source of the encouragement here. It is because we're with him that we find the resources to be patient with others, in a sense. And it's pregnant with this. I think you can, you can think of 
what, what with him means in terms of past, present and future. And, and I think they're worth reflecting on here as we finish. First of all, to be with him in Paul's thinking is to reflect on the reality that Christ has come to be with us. See, we're with God because God came to be with us, so the scriptures. God didn't wait for us to get it all together either before he did it. To be with him is to be reminded that God left his heavenly throne to be with us. It's what, of course, the incarnation and the birth of Christ that the first Christmas reminds us of, the great descent. But God's being with us, his presence with us, as an expression of his patience with us, is not just expressed in Jesus coming and becoming a Palestinian man and living as a carpenter for 30-odd years. But if you go back to the previous verse, it is Christ dying for us. Because for God to be with us, he doesn't just need to come to earth. He needs to come and meet us in the depths of our spiritual bankruptcy. He must come right down to the core of hell itself and meet us there. Like a bungee jumper throwing themselves off a bridge and having to see their body plunge into the river below before they rise again. Christ comes right down to the point of death itself to meet those who are spiritually dead. So when Paul says, you're with him, he's reminded that Christ has gone to the very descent of death itself to be with you. That's the encouragement. God's patience, you see. See, when we're impatient, we draw away from people. I don't have time for them. I, I just, I can't. I've got too much on. I've got too many things. I've got too many pressures. I have to withdraw. They're not, they're not good enough. They're not capable enough. They're not efficient enough. They're not productive enough. They're not up to it. But God looks at us, and we're all of those things. And rather than withdrawing, he comes closer, offering, offering to be with you in your worst. And it's worth asking yourself, have you taken that offer up? Are you with Christ? Because Christ wants to be with you. Paul says he died for you. He's come to your very worst state for you. Are you with Christ? Because when you start to understand what Christ would do, such as the extent of his patience with all your failings and mistakes, uh, now you start to unlock some of, some of the keys to patience with others and all of their weaknesses. But Christ and God's patience with us is not limited just to that moment on Calvary when Christ bears all of the sin of the world and descends to the depths of death and hell itself. But it's present even now with us. God is patient with you now. It's not like he, he did something for you 2,000 years ago and he will appear at some future time and reunite with you. But the promise of Scripture is that he's with you now. If you ask a grandparent, what's the joy of grandparenting? Most of them will say this, you get to give them back at the end. To be a parent, however... Your task is to be with them, right? It's your job to, be, to go through the sleepless nights, through the sickness, through the hospital visits, and whatever else, and whatever other values you, valleys you might have to go through with your child. That's what it is. And you see, God is a parent, not a grandparent, with all due respect to grandparents. 
because he's with us even now. The great encouragement of Scripture is God is patient with you. Not only is he patient with your, your great spiritual bankruptcy, he's patient with your ongoing, reoccurring failures. He's with you. His Holy Spirit dwells in you knowing you will continue to make mistakes such as his patience with you. You see, the more you grasp the reality of what God is offering you, the more you start to look at other people in a new way. If God can be so patient and kind with me, if he cannot just tolerate me, but dwell in me and treasure me, maybe I can treasure others in a new way, says Paul. And yet, of course, for Paul in Thessalonians, particularly, to be with to be with Christ is a great promise which we all are to hold on to. Because what Paul is saying is, be patient now, my friends, because at one point you will no longer need to execute patience. You will be with the Lord. If your faith is in Christ, you will see him face to face. Your heart will be filled up. Your anxieties will be quelled. Your questions will be answered. Your longings will be met. Your need for love will be filled up. Because then you will be with Christ. You will see him face to face. You will hear him speak to you. You will not have to cower in his presence. You will be with the Lord forever. And, and Gordon used that helpful illustration last week of the tug of war and the little, the little black bit at the end and he's, Paul says if you can be patient just for that moment do you see what lies in store for you God is willing to be with you forever forever the only thing that will eclipse his love for you now is his love into eternity and so you know, the more, the more we grasp this, the more that we, this is why in the Old Testament the, the Israelites are constantly reminded that God's compassion is never-ending. Never-ending. And as you read the Old Testament, you are reminded of God's repeated willingness to take the Israelites back. Because actually, in the end, our patience, our willingness to love others is always a product of receiving God's kindness and patience and love to us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus that in his descent to death and hell he meets us and is with us and as he drags us back up he remains with us, enduring with us, enduring us. So as we are, as we are lifted into eternity, Heavenly Father, we might dwell with you forever. May this great gospel, this gospel declaration of your patience, your enduring love, your faithfulness, your steadfastness, be the ground for our lives now as we prepare for that eternity. And so, Lord, as we believe the gospel, help us to be people who are shaped by it, who love each other in light of it,
whose patience extends beyond the bounds of human capacity into the divine provision of your Holy Spirit at work in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name.